we get to one final narrative in the book. And this narrative is the final word that the narrator has on David. Chapter 24, verse 1. Yahweh's anger again raged against Israel. It raged against Israel and he incited David against them, saying, Go, count Israel and Judah. We have no idea why God is angered. We don't know what sin Israel has committed. We do know that every time it mentions that God is angry, it's always because of idolatry and the nation. There's some kind of idolatry, there's some kind of or blatant high-handed sin from enough people that God is going to punish Israel. Now, that's we're used to that. But the way that he punishes Israel is something that's completely different. We're used to God bringing plagues when he's punishing Israel. We're used to him bringing enemies to punish Israel. We're, we're used to lots of things. But what it says here is that God incited David to take a census so that he could punish David for taking the census. So God basically tempted, I don't know, if, I mean, that feels like such a bad word because it says God doesn't tempt us. But I don't know what other synonymous word to use for incited. But he, he pushed, he prodded David to take a census that ends up becoming sinful so God can punish him for it. Why can't God just punish them for the sin that they've committed that made God angry to begin with? I don't know. Why does he have to push David into another sin so he can punish him? I don't know. What is the sin that they committed? I don't know. How in the world does God think that it's okay for him to incite David to do something that is not good? I don't know. Is God directly inciting him or is he allowing... He's taking his hands off and allowing temptations to come in David's life and David's not going to God. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. But once again, we have another place where God just explodes your God box and he doesn't apologize and he doesn't blush. And he doesn't hide it from you either. And I think this is so important. I keep making this point over and over again. If God really wanted to just give you this like, totally feel-good image of who he is that would just make you just feel warm and fuzzy inside all the time about him, he would lead these stories out of his Bible. But he put it here, and he doesn't apologize. And he doesn't even explain it. He just says, there it is. And for thousands of years, theologians have been chewing on it. And we're still at the point where we're like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. I really have no idea. And, and everything I've read, everybody's people take guesses and stuff, but at the end they're like, my guess is this. It's kind of a pathetic guess. I don't know whether this is a direct inciting or using other people. God never tempts us, but he doesn't protect us from other people tempting us. So sometimes God says that he's directly done something and he takes credit for it because he actively made it happen in your life. And other times, he hasn't actively allowed, done it. He just allowed it to happen. He stepped back and allowed the world to happen. But he still takes credit for it because he's the one who allowed it to happen. That's important to understand. So I don't know if this is a direct incitation or an indirect incitation. To tempt David in that way, and he never protected David, and David never went to God for help, and just allowed it to happen. I don't know. For whatever reason, God's allowing this to happen so he can punish David. Technically, if I get tempted to go out and get drunk, 
in a way God has allowed that. God didn't make me go get drunk, but he did allow whatever circumstances come into my life to make it happen. He allowed that person to come in and convince me that was a good idea. He allowed me to go into my depression of thoughts and think that that was a good medication. He allowed it to all happen. We don't know whether God inciting David is because he's just allowing the normal circumstances of David's life to happen to him, or that whether God literally went towards him and pushed him to do that. I don't know. This isn't a command from God. God didn't come to him and command him through a prophet. David has no idea where this is coming from. No prophet came to him. God didn't come to him. No angel of Yahweh came to him and said, God said, do this. But God was the one behind it, either by using circumstances to push David that way, or God taking his hands off and saying, I'm going to allow the circumstances to naturally happen. Therefore, in that sense, it's still a sin of David because he fell into the temptation and he gave in to it. And even if God says, I'm not going to stop your friend from convincing you to medicate your depression through alcoholism because I want you to make that choice. If, even though God says, I'm not going to stop him from doing it, I still am sinning. I'm still disobeying God because technically every time I sin, God hasn't stopped me. But it's still a sin. God could have allowed the temptation to come in David's life, and David could have easily said, I'm not going to be tempted in that area, and I'm not going to take a census. And that way he would have been obedient to God. He would have been obedient to God through God's laws. Because this is not a direct command from God, if David would have said, no, I'm not going to take a census, he would not have been disobeying God because he would not be given into the temptation. Probably a better way to see this is that God knows that that's the temptation for him, and he knew the future, and he knew that David would give in to it. He allows David to be tempted in that area, knowing that it will lead to sin, knowing that he will be punished for it. What's interesting, too, is that God always gives you a way out. Even when God is inciting it happening, he puts Joab and the officers of the army in David's life to convince him not to do it. The fact that David keeps pressing through, even though God is t trying to stop him from doing it, shows how much David really is sinning in this area and how much he really deserves the judgment. This is also not just punishing David. This is punishing the entire nation. Because if he was just interested in punishing David, the plague would not cover the entire nation. What's the purpose of a census? The purpose of a census really only has two purposes. You count the number of people that are in your nation so you can tax them or draft them. That's it. To get more money out of them or to draft them into a war. Now, a census in itself is not bad because God commanded Moses to take a census of Israel in the very beginning of Numbers and the very end of Numbers. But that was commanded by God. And when God commands you to do something, he has altruistic reasons for it. But we know this wasn't commanded by God because we're right now we're being told this God punishing him with this. So there's only two purposes that you would ever take a census, and that's taxes, collecting money, a violation of the Deuteronomic regulations, and two, drafting people into war, a violation of the Deuteronomic regulations for the king of Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14 through 20, because... You're trusting your army, your numbers, more than you are God. Both of them are violations of Deuteronomic regulations for the king. There's another possibility that when you go to draft, 
You're supposed to draft in order to go to war, and that requires the men to abstain sexually from sexual practices and cleanse themselves. And there's no mention of that happening. Maybe God is doing this knowing that David doesn't know that law or won't obey that law, and then he can punish the entire nation. I don't know. Once again, I don't understand why we have to have two sins for God to punish. But I I do know that a lot of times God doesn't punish us until we reach a certain point. He made that very clear with the canines. I can't punish the canines yet. It's not that I can't punish them for anything at all, but I can't really punish them until their sin becomes right. They're not bad enough for me to punish them in that way. So maybe God is inciting them into another sin so that they become bad enough that his, he, he can use the law on them. I don't know. But David does this. And so the king told Joab... The general in command of his army, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and muster the army so that I may know the size of the army. So David goes out and he actually does the census. The fact that God doesn't explain at all what is really going on in these first two verses says to me that it could be either behind our understanding, like he never answers why he loves us and he never answers why there's suffering in the world, It could just be beyond our understanding. Or it could be that the narrator doesn't really think this is the issue of the story. Maybe in their culture, for the narrator, he's not like, he's just, okay, that's God. For us, we're like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. I'm bothered by this. For an ancient Israelite in the Eastern world, they're probably thinking, what? Okay, whatever. (laughs) And maybe they're not dealing with it because that doesn't bother that culture. Maybe he doesn't deal with it because that's not the point. And what I would say is, yes, that's right. That's not the point of the story. The point is what's coming. Job replied to the king, May Yahweh your God make the army a hundred times larger right before your eyes of my lord the king. But why does my master the king want to do this? This is the first time Job has ever said anything right. He actually spoke the words of God. (laughs) This real wisdom came out of his mouth. He's basically going, David says, trust God to make your army bigger. You don't need to make your army bigger through drafting. So that says right here that Job sees this census as a draft than he does as a taxes issue. And Job is actually pointing David in the right direction. And here we go. Just as we're showing you the last things of David to show you that he's truly a man of God's own heart, it's like the narrator's like, okay, I've been just filleting Joab through this entire book. I'm going to give you one little good thing about him at the very end. But the king's edict stood. Despite the objections of Joab and the leaders of the army, everybody's objecting. And this reminds you of 2 Samuel chapter 11, when everybody's warning Bathsheba's married, she has a father. And he just keeps plowing through. So Joab and the leaders of the army left the king's presence in order to muster the Israelite army. And they crossed the Jordan and camped at Aror on the south side of the city at the Wadi of Gad near Jazer. And then they went on to Gilead to the region of Tatmi Hadish, commanding the Dan and Janan, and on around Sidon. And they went to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And then they went on to the Negev of Judah to Beersheba. And they went through all the land after the nine months and 20 days came back to Jerusalem. So basically what he's saying is 
that they're in Jerusalem, and the first thing that they do is that they move eastward across the Jordan River, and they go through the Gilead Transjordan region across the river. They come up to the Galilee, and they go through the north all the way to Dan, and then they come down to Tyre, where Sidonia and, and Israel meet each other, and then they came down through the middle of Israel, through the Canaanite Hivite territories, and all the way down the south of Jerusalem, where Beersheba is in the desert. So they kind of did that circle and that way and they came back up to Jerusalem. That was their, their, their path way. Joab reported the number of the warriors to the king in Israel and there were 800,000 sword-wielding warriors in Judah and there were 500,000 soldiers. And David felt guilty after he had numbered the army and David said to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now, O Yahweh, please remove the guilt of your servant for I have acted very foolishly. Yes, we're seeing the bad of David. He took a census. We're seeing the ugly of him as he just ignores everybody and plows into whatever he wants to do. But we're seeing the good, and the narrator is reminding you that this is why he's a man after goes on heart, because he became convicted. And he immediately went to God and he repented. Now, what's amazing about this is we've seen David do this several times. But what's different between this and many of the other times? He repented on his own. The only time we've ever seen him repent on his own is when he was confronted with the, the temptation to kill Saul. But every other time, with, with Bathsheba, with Uriah, with killing Nabal, um, all of those people, he always needed somebody to point the finger at him, convict him. And every single time somebody called him out on his sin, he always repented. He always humbled himself. But most of the time in his life, he's needed somebody to convict him. He's needed somebody to call him out. And here, he becomes convicted on his own. And he repents on his own, and he goes to God on his own. And this is what makes a man after God's own heart. Because once he sees the result of what he's done, he says, Oh, that was screwed up. And he repents, and he goes to God. Verse 11. When David got up the next morning, Yahweh had already spoken to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go tell David, this is what Yahweh says. I'm offering you three forms of judgment. Pick one of them, and I will carry it out against you. Now, this is also brand new, too. This is like a whole different version of choose your own adventure books. Choose your own judgment. God says, you get to pick your judgment. Gad went to David and told him, Shall there be seven years of famine? Come upon your land, or shall you flee from your enemies for three months with them in hot pursuit? Or shall there be three days of a plague in your land? Now decide what I should tell the one who sent me. None of those are good. Now, what do you notice about these judgments? They've all happened to David at different times. He's experienced famine, he's experienced his enemies chasing him, he's experienced plagues. So he has first-hand experience with all these. What else do you notice? They increase in severity, but decrease in length of time. The severity gets worse. Famine is bad, but it's not as bad as armies coming into your nation and wiping people out and killing them. And that is not as bad as a plague. But they become fewer days every time. David has to choose between long periods, less intensity, or greater intensity, fewer 
days. Why is God doing this? For David's answer. Because David's answer reveals David's character and what he gets about God. David says this. David said to Gad, verse 14, I am very upset. I prefer that we be attacked by Yahweh, for his mercy is great, and I do not want to be attacked by men. What the other way it says is, I rather fall into the hands of God, for he is gracious, rather than fall into the hands of anything else. It doesn't say specifically which one he picked, but we know which one he picked by what happens next, the plague. Now, what's the significance of that? Nature has no compassion. Nature, famine, indiscriminately kills people without any mercy. We've seen it. You may have seen it in your own life. You see it on the news. There's no mercy. There's no grace. There's no compassion from nature. It just indiscriminately kills, and it kills thoroughly. Your enemy's chasing you. He's been there twice. There is no compassion from enemies who want to kill you. Enemies who are dead set on killing you usually don't repent. And when they do repent, like Saul twice, they change their mind and they come back after you. There is no mercy. There is no compassion. There is no grace. But plagues come from the hand of God. And God is merciful. And God is gracious. And there have been times where God has sent plagues and then relented and stopped them. Pharaoh is an example. And what David realizes in that moment is, I'm going to be punished, but I'd much rather fall into the hands of an awesome, gracious, loving God. Because at least he will value my life. At least he will value me. And at least I'll know that he's doing this for my own good and not just to annihilate me. That's huge. That's huge. 